In our continuing look at characters from the old, from Genesis, essentially, um, this summer and fall, we're focusing on Rachel today, and I'll be reading three brief passages from her life. The first is Genesis 30, 22 through 24, then we'll skip to Genesis 35, and then we'll have a passage from Jeremiah. So Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And now to chapter 35, verses 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. When she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As Rachel's soul was departing, for she died. She named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, to Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And then at Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we look at Rachel, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, and may we be edified as the people of God. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. For people who intentionally name a child after a biblical character, Rachel is a popular choice. Of all the biblical names chosen for girls born in America in the last 100 years, Rachel ranks number seven behind Mary, Elizabeth, Sarah, Deborah, Rebecca, and Anna. During this same 100 years, 545,000 infant girls in our country have been named Rachel. 
thank you to the Social Security system, we can have this data. (laughs) I asked one parent who had chosen that name for her daughter what led her to that decision. I didn't want to just choose a name that was pretty and popular, the mother said. I wanted a name that had some meaning behind it. Perhaps in this sermon we can explore some of that meaning. Rachel is the favored wife of Jacob. When they meet at the well, it is love at first sight. They are the first biblical couple to fall in love and then marry rather than marry and then fall in love. And even though they have to wait seven years for Jacob to work for Rachel's father Laban before being allowed to marry, the seven years seems to them but a few days. Time collapses when love is fresh and new. But from the wedding night forward, things get complicated. Rachel's sister, Leah, is the firstborn. Law and tradition call her to marry first. For a variety of reasons, some noble, some not, their father Laban slips Leah into the marital bed on the wedding night, tricking the trickster Jacob in the process but legally binding Jacob to Leah. This complicates matters after the wedding as well. Laban requires Jacob to promise to work for him seven more years in exchange for being allowed to marry Rachel as well as continuing to be married to Leah. Jacob has no choice but to agree. Laban allows the marriage to Rachel to go forward then seven days after He exacts this promise from Jacob. So the household begins with Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Rachel's maid Bilhah, and Leah's maid Zilpah. Evidence of some prosperity on the part of this immigrant family. Jacob has inherited God's promise of land, descendants, and blessing made to his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. So Jacob must produce an heir for the small band of descendants to grow into the great nation that God has envisioned and promised. Without descendants, God's promise falls apart. Unfortunately, in this newly minted household... Fertility proves to be a problem for Jacob and Rachel as it had been for Abraham and Sarah and for Isaac and Rebekah. The onus falls on Rachel, however, for despite the crowdedness of the marital bed and the envy and competition between two sisters married to the same man in the same house, over a 14-year period, 11 children are born through Jacob to everyone but Rachel. Leah gives birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, who out of desperation Rachel gives to Jacob to try to produce an heir, gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Leah's maid, Zilpah, whom Leah gives to Jacob when her own fertility seems at an end, brings forth Gad and Asher. Leah's fertility is then restored, and she gives birth to sons Issachar and Zebulun, and finally to a daughter named Dinah, 
This is why we teach all about family in Sunday school. (laughs) And please repeat all of those names to me now. Ten males and one female, all fathered by Jacob, born in the course of 14 years to three women, but none born to Rachel. Like her mother-in-law, Rebecca, Rachel's entry into this family began with energy and love, light and life, but then moved quickly into the realms of darkness, disappointment, and grief. What poet Stephen Dunn refers to in our day as the fundamental business of making do with what's been left us. Most of us learn the art of making do over time, long after we have entered marriage or started a family, if in fact we've done either. But Rachel has to learn the art of making do a little bit quicker, at least in the first 14 years of her marriage. Now, I know when most of us seek to read the Bible or listen to it preach Sunday after Sunday, it seems like an endless book, a novel that makes Moby Dick or War and Peace feel like a short vignette. The Bible contains nearly 800,000 words, only 100,000 less than all of Shakespeare. The Bible is a hard book to tackle. But sometimes we need to just stop and listen to the few words that are before us for the day. Into this fundamental business of making do, the narrator of Genesis says simply, God remembers Rachel. God heeds Rachel. God opens Rachel's womb. Rachel conceives and bears a son and says, God has taken away my reproach. God remembers Rachel. Now, two things follow in this microsecond of time. Rachel names her son Joseph. And that name which she has chosen means God shall add. It is as if as soon as she chooses this name, she stands up from the delivery table and says, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, I'll leave it up to those of you who have been through the birthing process to comment on this aspect of Rachel's enthusiasm. But I can't imagine that many of you who go through labor and delivery stand up and immediately say, I'm ready to do this all over again. But such is the exuberance of Rachel, which is perhaps why many of the half a million people in our country have chosen her name for their children, for their daughters. Now, Rachel's bursting forth with life and desire for another child are true antidotes 
to the dark realism of the fundamental business of making do. But realism eventually returns to Rachel, as it does for most of us. But through her, it is in a harsh and deadly way. Some years later, as Jacob's prosperity gives him the possibility of financial independence from Laban, Jacob begins a journey back home, back to Israel. Along the way, Rachel's desire for a second child is met. When she goes into labor while making this journey, the beaming midwife who is assisting assures her that she will soon have another son. But no sooner do these words leave the midwife's lips than the midwife sees with her eyes Rachel's soul suddenly depart from her body. As Rachel's final act in the last few seconds of her life, she names the son to whom she has just given birth, Benoni, which means the son of my sorrow. When Jacob arrives on the scene, Almost at the same instance, he is aware of Rachel's death. His first action is to rename the child Benjamin after a region, a territory, a place to which they are going. It may be that Jacob does not want people to call his son's name And be reminded of the subjectivity of emotions. But rather to be reminded of the concreteness of place. There is something in us that longs for solidity rather than subjectivity. For things we can touch rather than for things we simply feel. Or perhaps at a more specific level level. Jacob knows that his son will grow up with a tremendous psychological burden of knowing his mother died bringing him into the world and maybe Jacob wants to spare his son the added burden of being named after the sorrow of his birth and of her death. If the change of name seems disrespectful to the woman dearest to Jacob he next does something That he is comfortable doing. He takes a stone. And he builds a tomb in Rachel's memory. And he buries her in the tomb. Like the altar of rock that Jacob had built. After his dream of a letter. At the beginning of his journey. Like the stone he had rolled away from the mouth of the well when he had first met Rachel and assisted her watering her father's sheep, Jacob is adept with stonework, with solidity, with finished products that well wear over the that well that wear well over the years and don't sway with the changing events and the changing emotions these events bring. Like many men and some women. 
Jacob may be one who retreats to the tool shed or the woodworking shop when unwelcome news arrives at the door in the form of white-gloved Marines announcing a sacrifice. But ironically, from this memorial in the wilderness, from this pile of stone and rock, Rachel's voice carries up and carries out. Nearly a thousand years later, the prophet Jeremiah remembers Rachel not for where she was buried, but for the sound of her sorrow. A voice is heard in Ramah, Jeremiah says, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah is writing these words to the people of Israel after their kingdom has fallen, is divided, has been overrun, and as their best and their brightest are being carried off to exile in chains. Jeremiah knows that every person on their way to exile will pass by Rachel's tomb. And as they see Rachel's tomb, Jeremiah wants them to hear her voice, at least in their hearts and minds. He wants them to remember her cry of sorrow. He wants them to experience the the empathy of someone who knows their pain. And through that empathy, he wants them to draw strength from the words of hope with which he surrounds these words of pain. Keep your voice from weeping, Jeremiah writes, and keep your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work. There is a reward for your exile, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. Your children shall come back to their own country. As exiles pass Rachel's tomb, they thus experience not only her empathy, but they receive a promise of return, a promise of release, a promise of deliverance. And it is precisely the depth and honesty and pain of her tears that give her credibility to make that promise. Several hundred more years later, after Jeremiah, when Matthew writes his gospel, he depicts the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Family as reliving through the elements of Jesus' birth the suffering of the people of Israel. As the Holy Family faces the threat of a wicked ruler intent on slaughtering all the children to make sure that they kill the infant who might claim to be king, Matthew remembers Rachel and he depicts her watch over their pain. He too quotes Genesis and Jeremiah 
a voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. Matthew 2 equates Rachel's empathy with the ultimate promise of deliverance that the Messiah Christ brings. Finally, I want to add my own take on Rachel today. I think one reason Rachel is popular is because her whole being, as we see her in Scripture, her whole being is about children. Being able to conceive and bear a child. Naming a child honestly in a way that speaks to her pain and their pain. And her tomb being a symbol of hope for refugees returning home and flourishing. Rachel both weeps and hopes for all children to have a home, to find a home, to return home. When we think about nearly every issue that is tearing our country apart today, they are nearly all about children, some directly, some indirectly. Climate, education, race, immigration, democracy, war and peace, National security, international security, abortion, violence by guns and knives, by fists and photos, technology, health care, drugs and alcohol and opioids, economic opportunity, economic security. Inequality, standards expressed in popular culture and sports. In all these issues, to be sure, as everyone in this room knows, God is in the details. And in a democratic society, it takes responsible leaders, responsible legislatures, Responsible elected officials at all levels. Responsible judges. And perhaps most of all, for the details to work out, it takes voters who are courageous, collaborative, and compromise to elect leaders who are courageous and collaborative and willing to compromise. Rachel dies giving birth to her child, and her last act is to name him for the sorrow she feels, perhaps because she assumes that her voice will die with her. But her voice lives on. 
the concern she has for her children, for the children of Israel, indeed for the children of all the nations of the world, her voice does not die with her. Every time we hear her name, every time we speak her name, every time we give her name to one of our own, we are refusing to be consoled until all is right with the children of our generation and generations to come, with the children of our nation and all the nations of the world, for the children in the economic and educational sectors in which most of us live and for those in which millions, millions do not live. Rachel is a pretty name. It's a popular name. But it has deep meaning as well. Amen.